You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of A Quiet Place Part 2. to the trailer for A Quiet Place Part 2, and the story is as follows. Following the deadly events at home, the Abed family must now face the terrors of the outside world as they continue their fight for survival in silence. Forced to venture into the unknown, they quickly realize that the creatures that hunt by sound are not the only threats that lurk beyond the sand path. The film is starring Emily Blunt, Killian Murphy, Militia Simmons, Noah Jupe, Jaimon Hunsu, and John Krasinski. It is written and directed by John Krasinski. Here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Danilo Castro. Hey, everybody. Dan Baer. Run. <laughs> no, we're, we're going to stay put and record this podcast. <laughs> and also Josh Parham. Hello, hello. All right, everyone. So A Quiet Place Part 2, the follow-up film, the continuation, the sequel to A Quiet Place, a film that took a lot of people by surprise, became this big box office hit, did better than expected in its award season run, and really put John Krasinski on the map as a director to watch. This is his only follow-up film since then to A Quiet Place. Still very interested to see what else he has to offer outside of this franchise, but as far as a continuation goes of this story, you know, I look back on the first A Quiet Place and how that movie ended with Emily Blunt, you know, cocking the shotgun and it goes to the credits. So it only felt natural that there would be a sequel to this at some point. And then the question on everybody's mind was, well, what is it going to look like? How will it deliver? John Krasinski has chosen not only to expand the world, but also continue the story, really making this film in and of itself act two, I believe, of what is going to be a three-act structure with a forthcoming third film, I think. I hope. I don't know. We'll see. What does everyone else think? Let's first start off with Danilo Castro. So I like the first Quiet Place quite a bit. Um, I think it's pretty well directed. I'm not in love with all of the narrative decisions, but on the whole, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And I was expecting 
more of the same mostly. And I think ultimately what I came away with was a movie that I thought was slicker, had some cool ideas, but for me it lacked a lot of the emotional heft of the first one. And so what I was left with was sort of the the excitement and the intensity of a lot of the action scenes. So I think it's an improvement in some ways aesthetically, but overall I don't quite know if it matches the first one. Okay. All right. Interesting. Dan Bear, what about yourself? Yeah, I was also a huge, huge fan of uh, A Quiet Place, and I was looking forward to this. But I I think that a lot of what A Quiet Place does, this film does as good or even better than the first. Um, but when it, it got to the end, I was, I was more underwhelmed with it um, because the last act uh, <laughs> becomes a lot more obvious than everything that came before and it ends becoming something else that it definitely wasn't for the rest the previous like 95% of the movie and like I I agree with it in theory but in execution it it's just not there and it makes me feel like well this was all a, a setup for a part three clearly and like what what is so wrong with stories having a beginning a middle and an end ask uh disney (laughs) that question (laughs) not disney marvel yeah (laughs) pretty much all right josh parm what about you what do you think well when i think about the first quiet place uh first of all I, that was a movie that I liked, but I did not find myself loving it. I thought that it was like a solidly entertaining movie, but the hyperbolic praise that it got, I just was never on board with. But it was entertaining, and I enjoyed it, but didn't really think about it much more outside of that. And so coming into the second one, I did walk in with an expectation of probably hoping for the same, that I would just like it, but maybe it would just be entertaining. And I have to be honest that I didn't really even find this one all that entertaining. And I think the biggest issue that I have with this movie is that it really doesn't feel like it expands the world in a way that I found all that compelling. It does open up its scope, but I feel like it also just kind of repeats a lot of the same things that the first one did. And a lot of character arcs are kind of just shifted over to other people, but they're still basically the same thing. And the novelty of the first experience certainly does not repeat here. And I think that there are some sequences that are rather impressively shot and directed, but they are few and far between for me. And overall, I just really found this to be kind of lacking in that emotional connection, as was stated earlier. I, yeah, I didn't really care for the movie overall. All right. Well, I'm taking bits and pieces of what everyone said here, but I'm probably going to be the most enthusiastic in my praise of this one. And I think a lot of that has to do with how I felt about the first film when it came out, which I thought was a very solidly crafted film in terms of obviously the sound, the tension, uh, Marco Beltrami's score, a couple other elements. I liked Emily Blunt's performance and, of course, Militia Simmons just knocking it out of the park. Uh, but there were a couple other things that held me back from like really, 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 really high level of praise, which I did see a lot of my colleagues giving to that first film. 
Uh, a lot of it had to do, of course, with unanswered questions, some plot holes in the screenplay. What I really appreciate about this film is that even though it didn't go overboard in answering a ton of those questions, it still did answer some questions and it still added extra context to how did the creatures actually come to Earth. Um, it also answered some other questions in regards to what their limitations are, not just with the fact that they're blind, uh, but there's also an added element of the fact that they can't swim in this movie as well. So there were a couple of different things that were added here, which I really, really appreciated, and that helped also my context of the first film a bit more. But with that said, I definitely agree with the fact that if you are a fan of the first film and you like what the first film did in terms of the creature design, the tension, the use of sound, this movie doesn't necessarily try to reinvent the wheel. It instead just gives you more of what came before. And if you like what came before, then you should like this, but I can totally understand if instead there are people who are taking the stance of, well, I kind of wanted them to do something different and not give me more of the same. I, I completely understand that take, and I totally get where people are coming from with it because of the fact that, you know, if we're spending time watching a movie, again, for, you know, in this case, 97 minutes long, uh, you know, we don't want to see the same story being told uh, twice or... Maybe what is truly, in this case, a transitional middle section of the movie where it's more of the same. Some questions are answered, but we're not getting a full arc. We're not getting the full story, the full ending, etc. We're getting, like Dan was saying, like almost like a transitional film into what is going to be probably the culmination of everything that came before it, I'm sure, and maybe will have the opportunity to blow us away even more so than this film did. Once again, completely understand <laughs> that logic. Totally get it. I think that my enthusiasm of the first film was just so much lower than maybe everyone else's that this film felt more like a perfected version of what came before it, even if it was more of the same, if that makes sense. There are elements of this that I think are definitely a step up uh, from the first film. I think the use of the score is much better. Oh, my God. Marco Beltrami really knocked it out of the park in this one. I, I he, he did. The score, I think, is really good, but I think it's used better in this movie. Yeah. It is used more as a punctuation to scenes where, like, arguably the whole point of if you're going to do a movie like A Quiet Place, the whole point is that it's basically a silent movie. <laughs> and yeah. the as good as Marco Beltrami's score for the first one was, th there was a bit too much music in the first one or the second one in the first one. Oh, see it's very interesting because like when he got the golden globe nomination even for it i remember thinking to myself like i don't really remember the score for the film if i'm being completely honest with you all whereas in this one i actually found it to be more prevalent and more pronounced to the point that it was really standing out as a Listen to me, I am a score and I'm really enhancing your viewing experience kind of a score. Well, so so that was the that's the thing, right? In this first one, it was all over the place and it was a decent, you know, horror thriller score, but it was 
everywhere. And that when it did that, it takes you out of the characters, you know, out of that world that they're in, which it's so good at setting that scene. And it just takes you out of it when there's constant music. And in this one, it is used much better to have that kind of effect you're talking about. Yeah. Found. It's not all over the place. They picked and chose the moments where they really wanted to have that score. And I think that worked really, really well. I, I have to say, I was, it, some people, you know, like in thrillers, they say like you're on the edge of your seat. This one, I was, same as the first one, I was like sort of like curled up in the back of my chair, like trying to sink in as far as possible because I was, the tension was raised so high. The direction and the editing are really really great and took everything that the first movie did well in those areas and just made it even that much better this time part of it too i think that also helps with that is also the fact that um this franchise has clearly shown uh by the end of the first film that it is willing to kill off main characters which gives the sequel a heightened sense of stakes to it where Pretty much outside of, and I hope this is not a spoiler, but pretty much outside of Emily Blunt and Militia Simmons, I really do think that everyone else is fair game while you're watching this. And there is an added level of tension to that in regards to will a character mess up, cause the death of another character, and then that will be uh, some sort of regret or trauma that they will carry with them uh, throughout the rest of the story and into a potential sequel. I think that helps the viewing experience uh, considerably when we do not know uh, which characters are safe and which ones are not. Yeah, but then I think the question becomes, do you care about any yeah. of those characters? And yeah. for me, I, I'm i sorry, but I really did not find myself becoming that invested in the arcs that were being set up here. I, I think that Militia Simmons is the best in this movie, I think. Her performance is really good. I will agree about that. She also takes more center stage in this one compared to the first one, I think. Sure. Yeah. But I also feel like her arc... I don't really feel what like her arc is all that different from what came before in the first well, movie. I was going to say, yeah. it's not over yet because there's clearly a third film that is coming after this. Yeah, well, I'm not judging the third movie yet and how this works in of course. totality. You know? Of course. Seeing it what the results are for this particular film. No, and I, I completely agree with you that this movie, I do think, suffers from being that middle transitional chapter in that regard. 100% agree with that. I was just going to say, it has the same third act problem that the first one did. Uh, which was? Basically, the third act is full of contrivances that are supposed to stand in for plot. And I was willing to give it the benefit of the doubt in the first one, but this one, it, it's kind of, oh, you're really just doing the same thing again. I mean, to a greater degree, though, on a bigger scale, I would on argue. On a bigger scale, yeah, sure, fine. But it's still the same story beats. I, I also think off was saying earlier that, like, <laughs> all the scenes, even in the first movie, are basically the same. Someone makes a loud noise. The monsters come. We have to be really, really quiet, really, really hard. And it's about how much tension you can milk out of that. And Krasinski is still really, really good at milking tension out of that. But your mileage will vary in terms of how much of 
how many of those kinds of scenes you're willing to take because before you want to sh- see something else. See, I'm really viewing this and like, I, I and tell me if I'm completely off base and saying it like this, truly, but I'm viewing this like almost in a way like Kill Bill Volume 1, Volume 2, where I genuinely believe, and I could be totally wrong about this later, and y'all can, you you can take this sound clip right now, clip it out of this podcast and play it back to me later and tell me that I was wrong. But I do think that when a third film comes out and this story is completely finished, hopefully, we'll see, um, I do believe that we will be able to watch one, two, and three, maybe even in a single sit down and see it as a three act story. But... I, I think my concern is, and it's kind of piggybacking on what Josh said previously, is that I think that definitely is a valid point in terms of needing to view the whole to get like a really good perspective on what it's supposed to be. But I do think that part two doesn't do enough to really like set the stakes for part three in a way where it's like, okay, this is going to be something that's very compelling because it does feel like we're sort of treading the same ground in the second installment. And so the third one, a lot of responsibility falls to it to like retroactively strengthen this one, at least for me. Yeah. I mean, this film, I think retroactively strengthens the first film by giving us extra context in this movie to the creatures and their abilities and such. I mean, don't you guys agree with that? No. Really? Because no, I like, really no. I mean, I swear to you, like I watched that first film and I still had so many questions when it was over and it really bugged the hell out of me. But about the monsters? Yes. But like, I, I don't know. I always find the second you start explaining a monster in a horror movie, that's the second where it loses all power to be scary. That's where I was going to go with it. Yeah, I agree with Dan. You I, run a high risk. It better be really yeah. compelling of an explanation. Otherwise, you're, I don't know, you're, you're sort of showing a little too much of the monster. Yeah. If I would say that if you're coming away from the first A Quiet Place wondering about where the aliens came from and what their whole deal is, then um, th- you actually don't think the movie is any good at all because that's not what the movie wants you to be focusing on. <laughs> I think the movie got me to focus on what it did want me to focus on in terms of its craft. But yeah, no, I'm sorry. But like, you got to give me a little bit. You got to give me a little bit more story about who the Abbott family was before these events took place, which this film oh, yeah, does sort of answer to a certain extent with one scene. Yeah, the the prologue is very well done. Like I would yeah. even argue it's the best part of the movie, but that doesn't really give me any more context of like the creatures themselves. I mean, in even the prologue itself, like. It's very well done, but even that, I don't know if it really adds that much more to my understanding of who these characters are in this point of the story. I I find that this movie expands the world, but it doesn't deepen the world at all. Like It still feels like we're working with the same kind of themes and character archetypes as the first movie had, and are they inhabited by good actors? Yeah. Are some sequences very well executed in terms of their tension? Absolutely. But in terms of being like a substantive progression and evolution of these characters, I felt it was very stagnant in that regard. And I'm giving it the benefit of the doubt that it's leaving us wanting more intentionally where it's not necessarily giving us everything we want to know, but giving it to us in pieces 
And, you know, call me hopeful, call me naive, call me whatever you want to call me. But there's a part of me that does believe that when <laughs> when all three films are out, like this will all make sense and we'll all feel worth it. <laughs> you know, Matt. Yeah. Isn't that perspective sort of conceding that there's stuff to be desired here? There is, which is why it's not a 10 out of 10 for me. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to clarify that. (laughs) That also still feels like it then fails at a story. Yeah. Like there's nothing, there's no satisfying arc through the storytelling here because the characters just. I disagree completely. Militia Simmons and Killian Murphy get arcs in this movie. I mean, you can have an arc, but is it a satisfying arc? No. No. Like I, I. like resolution to it's barely an arc. It's an arc yeah. that happens in the last five minutes of the movie and gets chopped off before it even finishes it. And it's basically the same one as the first film. Yeah, like, that's my thing. Which I totally agree with Josh that it is mimicking the first film, like beat for beat in that way. I totally get that. I do think that they are once again, considering that this movie came out in 2021, but it was ready to come out last year in 2020. The first film came out in 2018, and I don't think that they were working on a sequel before the success and release of the movie. I think they started working on it after they got the overwhelming praise that they did receive for it, is my guess. box office, let's not forget. Surely, exactly. So one can argue that had they been given more time or if they took more time, they could have come up with something more original, but instead it really is kind of like the hangover part two, where it's like, let's just repeat what we did the last time, add in a few new elements here or there, but leave them wanting more so that when we come in with the third film, we'll be able to wrap all this up. I don't know, but even then you still have to give me something, something more about these characters in this world enough to like justify me wanting to watch your movie. And I don't, I didn't come away from this movie feeling like I learned that much new about these people or about the world in which they live. And frankly, I didn't really feel like most of the characters left the movie learning anything new about themselves either. Well, I think Militia Simmons and Noah Jupe learned that they were a couple inches uh, taller all of a sudden than they were the last time. (laughs) I mean, you know, there's that. Fine. That was very noticeable (laughs) and it was a really hard. uh, Yeah, it was a little that was a little tough pill to swallow there. Especially Melissa Simmons looked a bit. She looked older than she did in the first one. Totally. Yeah, since it takes place immediately following that. I will admit with you, Dan, in terms of like characterization of our lead characters, do we learn more about Evelyn Abbott? Not really. Do we learn more about Reagan? Not really. Marcus? Not really. For me, it was more about the world building and what are other people doing outside of the Abbott family? Once again, learning some new information about the creatures. Is it a lot of new information that's being given to us? No, but... I am acting on, once again, good faith here. So that that is what my whole perception is clouded by with all of this. And once again, if I am wrong, I am emphasizing this. You all have the ability to literally shove this in my face a couple years from now and say, Matt, <laughs> you were completely wrong. <laughs> I do think to your point about it being the second act in, in three, um, 
generally, at least successful examples of it, uh, the second act is usually the one that is used to flesh out the characters, give them struggles, challenge them, maybe have them suffer some sort of defeat. And I don't feel like anything significant enough happens to the characters yeah. to justify this being like the low point of of a proposed trilogy. I agree with that, yeah. I, I, one of the things that I said to a friend after seeing it was like, if this was, this felt like the first episode of the second season of a TV show. Okay, I get that. Mm -hmm. In terms of the kind of story it's telling and how it tells it. And if that was the case, I would be all in. I would be ready for what else the season had to show me and what ready to go on this journey with these characters. But it's not. It's a standalone movie that's assumed assumed to be part of a trilogy. I mean, it's called part two. <laughs> right, part two, but it's not like exactly it's called part two. Before going in, I, I still don't think a part three has been greenlit unless I'm very high. Well, there's a little there's a little bit of confusion around that because there has been word that Jeff Nichols, who has directed movies like Midnight Special, Mud, Loving, has written a screenplay that has been handed in to uh, Krasinski, who is going to produce. And uh, apparently Jeff Nichols is set to direct it. But there is a little uh, confusion over whether or not if it is the third film or if it's a spinoff. Yeah, it takes place in the world. of Right. Yeah. And that's the thing that gets me like you go in to any movie, I think, expecting it to be a full story. And this is not a full story and to be clear i really liked this movie i didn't like it as much as the first one but i had a great it's a great time at the movies and i enjoyed myself thoroughly but it still is not fully satisfying because it doesn't like meet basic story principles I mean, in terms of it being a cinematic experience, uh, let's comment on that for a second. The movie is making $60 million and it's Memorial Day weekend here. It is a movie that people have given the label to as, OK, we have our first post pandemic box office reigning film to point at and say, yes, theaters are back, baby. With that said, I do think that if you see this movie Forget about the size of the screen, but if you see this movie with the best possible sound you can find anywhere, this is definitely a cinematic treat in a lot of different ways. Granted, once again, someone's probably going to say to me, but Matt, I already got that with the first film. This is just more of the same. To which I say, well, if you were a fan of the first film and you like what they were doing, yeah. then just go back and experience it again. There are some really, really creatively well done sequences in this movie in the way that it uses sound, mm -hmm. in the way that the uh, tension is edited and the way it's also shot, considering there was a cinematographer change with this one. Krasinski knows how to really direct horror very well. His screenplay writing, uh, you know, that's what we're debating a bit about here, obviously. But in terms of the aesthetics of this film and the way that it crafts its horror, he is still, I think, really, really top notch in what he's doing here. I think a lot of that for me is most apparent towards the beginning of the film. And as we said, mm -hmm. really in the prologue, like there's a moment that I honestly think like one of the scariest parts of the movie was when. John Krasinski just goes into like the grocery store and the, <laughs> just the sound design of that 
of how certain things are given much more emphasis in a world that it's like, wait, why is there so much sound right now? It's like, even that was really well done. Mm -hmm. I think as the movie goes along, though, to me, it the horror did kind of subside a bit in its impact. And I think a part of that was a little bit of the repetition from scenes that did kind of seem very familiarly constructed from the first movie. And I don't know, it's just like, as it went on, I recognized the craft that was still really well executed, but it didn't really hit me the same way as it did in, in the beginning of the film. I do think that that first, uh, well, the prologue sequence, I do think is good, not just because of, obviously, it's, you know, the world before um, everything else happened uh, with the creatures, you know, day one, you know, as they say in this, but it's also uh, bigger in scale. Like, there was a slight uh, budget increase from the last film to this film, and I think it shows in that sequence. And I have heard people complain that we see a little bit too much of the creatures in this movie compared to the first film, where in the first film they were definitely uh, scarier. But in this film, because they're seen a lot more often, they are less scary. And I think uh, someone else alluded to that earlier when you give them... uh, uh, more context, they become less scary. But in this one, they just they also have more screen time in general. And now the humans are starting to find ways to defeat them, which is starting to rob them of their terror. Uh, so I can I, I can understand where people are coming from in regards to maybe the stakes are becoming a bit lower. But I do think that there are some really creative aspects still in this screenplay where conflict is introduced and problems need to be solved. Otherwise, uh, they will still die because the creatures are still a formidable uh, threat. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey Hey there! there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Sleepover Cinema, Cinema. our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. I think that the sequence that actually best distills what the movie is doing really well for me isn't the opening sequence. It's the sequence where Reagan is out on her own and she comes across the train. Okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. The way that scene in particular 
locks us so strongly into her perspective, not just in terms of sound, but in terms of what she can see and what she can't is really, really good. I mean, there is no reason to believe that anything is going to, you know, jump out and get her in this completely abandoned train. But there is a moment when she's reaching for a, a first aid kit that had me like curled up in the back of my seat in terror because something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. And it was a stupid jump scare, but it was a stupid jump scare that got me really good. Yeah, I can understand that. I mean, there, there are a couple of sequences like that. I, I, I like the sprinkler scene quite a bit with Emily Blunt as well. I really like that in terms of fun because it's like, what is she doing? What is she doing? And then when you realize what she's doing, it's, oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> it is very well thought out action, definitely. Yeah. And in, in terms of like a bit of a mixed bag here for me, good thing first, bad thing second. Good. The addition of Killian Murphy to this cast. Mm-hmm. Bad. Jaiman Hunsu. <laughs> I I just like poor guy. <laughs> that was that was a letdown. I was I was very severely let down by that. But what you guys think of Killian Murphy? I, I mean, thought he was really good. I like Killian Murphy as an actor. I think my issue is that I don't really know what that character's like real purpose is, except to occasionally help Melissa Simmons in places yeah. where she needs to have some tension. Like I I don't really know what that character serves outside of that purpose. But, you know, Killian Murphy's a good actor, and I think that he gives a good performance. But the role is written feel it, – it felt a little superfluous to me, if I'm going to be honest. It almost felt like we don't have John Krasinski, and we need another actor to step in to kind be of. that kind of a character exactly. here. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I, it felt like. I thought that – if any character should have had an arc in this movie, it should have been him. How could you say that he did not is the thing that's bugging me right now. I'm not saying that he doesn't. I'm saying that what arc there is, is too small and unsatisfying. All right. Well, it worked for me. Sorry. I mean, he <laughs> goes from not wanting to help people at all to, well, OK, maybe I will. Yeah, because she gives him hope. Because prior to meeting, uh, prior to meeting uh, Reagan, uh, they, 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 there is no hope. It's just survival. And when Reagan presents, no, there is it, my hearing aid, and this thing could be used as a weapon. It revitalizes him. But in like the most basic like, way that you yeah. can present that, like there's nothing really related to like any kind of deeper emotional kind of journey that he's going through. They introduce something with like his own wife and family, but it's never really addressed. And they kind of maybe hinted something else that happened, but not, it's not explored in a very satisfying way. Okay. Without giving away that piece of information, that reveal, that jump scare moment where you do, (laughs) you do get a bit of a sense into what kind of guy this guy is since his family has, uh, you know, uh, uh, died. The movie doesn't, I I was I was very taken aback by that moment. I wasn't I wasn't really sure what we were supposed to feel in regards to that. That's the problem. (laughs) The movie doesn't do anything (laughs) with that reveal, though. It's just a jump scare. Right. You know, like that is something that should serve as 
something for that character, but it doesn't partially because like he's not present. <laughs> I, I think for me, what really helped to overcome and, and listen, you know, it's very, very funny to me that I'm coming off this way on this, uh, this sequel here, because I had so many complaints about the first film, but everybody else was like where I am with the second film. And I was like asking all these questions and saying, no, it doesn't do this well. It doesn't do this well. And people were just like, well, it does these things well. And that makes up for it for me. And I'll just come out and say, Killian Murphy's performance in this movie makes up for those shortcomings for me. And it's good. Like, I'm yeah, not going to deny that he, yeah. he gives a good performance. But I think, again, what I keep coming back to is my big barrier with this film is that so much like, yeah, the first movie is not perfect, but I think what it did well enough is that it created characters that you felt some kind of investment in. You felt for this family unit trying to survive. And that was enough for that first movie. And I think with the second one, whenever you want to continue a story, you can't just do the same thing over again. Like this is your opportunity to evolve these characters and to deepen them and make them more interesting and complex. And introducing more people make you know is an ingredient that helps that along and i don't think his character does any of that i don't think that he really creates enough of a different dynamic with the millicent simmons character even though that's clearly what they're trying to do but yeah. it really is a very similar dynamic and his own emotional arc feels very underdeveloped as well well i'll tell you this the way you say that I feel that way about Jaiman Hansu in this. The character doesn't even have a freaking name in this movie, for oh, goodness well, sake. Jaiman I mean, Hansu is, like, completely wasted. Like, that's on another yeah. level of, like, <laughs> completely having, having nothing to do. That's a level of, like, you could have put any old actor in that part and find Jaiman Hansu is a great actor. He auditions, he, you know, he read the best It was originally supposed part, to be Brian right? Tyree Henry, and he had to drop out due to scheduling conflicts. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so like that that also just boggles my mind what scheduling conflicts two days like <laughs> uh, you know what you know what did surprise me though um because i did not know that this person was actually a part of the cast and uh he he still has that impact on me that when he shows up i'm like oh it's him uh scoop mcnary pops up in this movie at one point okay you want to also talk about wasted potential yeah. i totally hear you josh uh, <laughs> that might actually be the most annoying thing because like jamon hansu was also wasted but like he half his career is roles that waste his talent like it's it's part of the course <laughs> why on earth you cast scoop mcnary in this movie and like literally give him nothing to do is beyond me i genuinely felt like we were watching an episode of the walking dead when that scene came on well, because then that's another thing that feels like there's something going on with those group of people, too, that seems like it's more questions to have this world become a little bit more complex. But we don't get into that at all. We have no real context of who those people are or what's sort of wrong with them. It's just introduced yeah. and then we're gone. I, there was part of me that, like, it is a very fast moving just over 90 minute movie and i wish that more movies would have that brevity but at the same time it does feel like there are a few scenes missing do you guys feel that if uh, someone else other than john krasinski directs the third film that this could help the third movie avoid some of these issues again i think he has to not write it yeah i don't I think, his direction I don't is think the it's the direction yeah. Mm, yeah it makes sense which is why I'm really, really hoping it's Jeff Nichols that's writing the third film. <laughs> I would be good with that. Yeah. Yeah. Something. 
uh, because I agree with you. I, I it, that was one element where it's like, okay, I'll give you guys like I'm a little frustrated that we're introducing more to this world, but we're not answering a lot of these questions for these people now. And now I'm hoping that that is something that they can address more in another film. But it's continuously with this hope of, oh, don't worry, we have another one. Don't worry, we have another one coming, et cetera, et cetera. And considering the box office results uh, for this second film, it seems inevitable that we will get a third film at some point. But I I can understand the argument, and I totally hear what everybody's saying in regards to that's not the way it should be. Storytelling should be confined to the standalone film. And I also know that I have been... Uh, victim of saying that here on this podcast before so you know i don't want to come off as hypocritical necessarily <laughs> uh but at the same time i really really am viewing this as almost and i think you know what dan you mentioned the length i do think the length is also helping me in this regard because if the movie was over two hours i would probably be more inclined to say nope they wasted my time they didn't give me enough Mm-mm, nope but the fact that it does move with such brevity, like you said before, I think it is aiding me in giving this uh, franchise the benefit of the doubt because it doesn't feel like such an investment to watch it. I get that. But at the same time, like I would gladly trade that brevity for a, you know, another cut of this that was 10 minutes longer, maybe mm-hmm. 10 to 15 minutes longer that really committed to this world building that it, it's hinting at. Yeah. And Matt, I'm sorry, but I really can't like agree with the notion of, Oh, well maybe this will all get resolved in the, the next movie. Apart from all the other reasons that you can probably guess why I wouldn't <laughs> agree with that. But like the first movie was not conceived as a trilogy. This yeah. was an original screenplay that two other people wrote and John Krasinski mm-hmm. got attached to and he has decided to spin this off into more movies, but like even the very first film was conceived as one film. It you know, and for me, I think that having not having that structure in this one, where it feels like so many things are introduced and intentionally not explored, maybe for further down the line, or just doing the same thing as the first movie did, is what makes me not connect to this film in the same way as the first one did, and that's what makes me grow very tiresome as I watch it. Yeah, I understand that. I I totally do. Once again, no. I think that this movie retroactively makes the first film even better. (laughs) I I will disagree (laughs) on that. If anything, this sort of makes it worse for me because that first one is such a really well-done standalone original property. With a lot of plot holes. Okay. I mean, it's a sci-fi, like the whole it, action horror. It's a thriller. Right? Like, come on. Once and again, for, the way you guys like, are defending the first film, that's how I'm defending the second film. We just traded places, is all. That's all. But the first the film has the benefit of being the first movie. You yeah. know, the second one now is a time where you have all of the things laid out. This is your opportunity to right. explore things a little bit more, and I don't think it does that very well. Yeah, I mean, look. The biggest plot hole in the first movie would be easily solved if they put if they changed the length of time since the invasion from one year to six months, because honestly, the biggest plot hole is how the fuck did you get pregnant and have a baby? I mean, really, that's just stupid. What you guys what you guys think of the fact that, uh, 
you know, obviously the baby was a small part of the uh, first film coming later in the runtime, but here the baby is something that they have to deal with throughout the entire runtime. Did you guys feel that that added to the tension and some of the horror elements, the dynamic of uh, how these scenes were constructed? Oh, sure. Uh, Kind of. I think the issue that I ran into was that it kind of just felt like they replaced the whole like giving birth sequence in the first movie with just now the baby's already here. And I felt like it just kind of went back to that well in terms of how we were supposed to feel in terms of that tension. It was well done enough, but I don't know if it like really wowed me to the point of like, oh, I'm like so invested in these scenes now. I like the stuff with the safe. I like the element of the oxygen tank as well, because that was something that for me was a very believable um, element that was added to keep the baby from being a problem, but was still something that they had to solve, obviously, when the oxygen became low, hence introducing more elements of conflict into the screenplay, more problems that our characters have to solve. So in that regard, I I really, really liked uh, those additional elements this time around. I did like that. Um, I thought, um, but I did was like Noah Jupe's character in this, like suffers from a really bad case of I am in a horror movie-itis. Yep, I will not defend this. That was, I I just like, I wish more context was given as to why he's acting out this way because man, oh man, some of those decisions that he made were dumb. What is so frustrating about that is I think Noah Jupe is great in the first movie like he is actually maybe stealthily maybe the best performance in the film to be honest like he is so good and felt so believable as somebody who would be cautious but realistic in these types of situations and in this one yeah he just becomes real stupid real quick and i'm sorry but i think his performance is terrible i I think he's going i think he's going through a really awkward transitional phase this time in his uh his life (laughs) you know where I do think that a lot of what he was giving us before worked, but now that he is, uh, you know, going through his growth spurt and he's becoming a young man, I do think he's in those awkward teenage years right now where, yeah, his performance is definitely suffering, I think, as a result of that. Because there are some things he does in this where it's like, okay, if you were like a kid, I would believe this more, but you're like almost like a full-fledged adult now. And I'm not necessarily buying it anymore. Now just coming off to be a silly. Yeah. And like I said, he felt more mature in the first movie than he does Mm. in this one. And like, look, I know that he's still a kid and you don't want to be too harsh, but it's only because he has been so good in so many other things, including the first movie, that Mm. to see him, the quality of his performance, like really dipped down so much in this one, it made it stand out so much more to me. And it was honestly very disappointing because, you know, we all love Noah Jupe. He's great. But yeah, this this was not a great use of his talent, I have to say. I, again, will blame the script because, like you said, um, Josh, in the first movie, he's cautious, but not this incredibly fearful child and this movie even in the prologue basically rewrites him to be scared of just about everything it feels as though they did it retroactively for the sake of the plot yeah exactly i also just can't get over the uh scene where he gets his foot stuck in the uh the trap oh that made me so upset i that uh (laughs) that mm, i get really weird about like foot ankle injuries and 
yeah, that. Dan's favorite film. I saw the devil. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But no, that scene in particular, I I remember I liked it so much for a second because I liked that he didn't react to it until he saw it, which is the way that in whenever we experience any kind of bodily harm is usually the case a lot of the time. Uh, But the way that he did react, that was like my first sign of, okay, either he's being over over directed in this moment or we're still supposed to believe that he is the little kid from the first film. But clearly Noah Jupe has aged and this is just coming off as overdone and silly at this point. That was like my 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 first example of that. And it kind of carried through with the rest of the movie once he then did start making some decisions that I was like, really? Like, I really thought you were smarter than this. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) So, yeah, not really good. But Militia Simmons, though, I feel like did avoid a lot of that. And she, I think, owns this movie even more so than she did in the first film. And in in a very bizarre uh, way Emily Blunt, uh, who got a lot of praise for her performance in the first film, is I think kind of sidelined here in favor of Militia Simmons, and I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I guess I was just more so surprised that Emily Blunt um, wasn't given more to do in this film. She just did kind of more of the same as she did in the first movie. But I thought Militia Simmons, though, uh, you know, with this, the first film, and uh, what was the one she did with um, Todd Haynes? Um, Wonderstruck. Yeah. Uh, she, she's just like an incredible talent. And that was a trade-off I didn't mind necessarily because it did yeah. give her more to do. I just feel like, again, like the more that she was given to do felt very similar to like arcs that were in the first movie. And that was like disappointing. But just to give her a showcase role, I think was nice. I, I appreciated that. I just think it goes back to the writing once again that it just felt like her evolution played in very similar circles that we had already seen before. And like the ending to the movie, I just didn't really find to be all that satisfying because I didn't feel like there was that much growth to what she as a character was going through, even though I liked her performance. Yeah, she she's fantastic. She was great in the first movie. And I love that they had a bigger role for her here. Um, and she repays that confidence in her with a really great performance. Yeah. And then, you know, Dan, you mentioned earlier, like the end of the movie, it starts to become something that betrays what came before it. Without giving getting into spoilers, I would like to know what you meant by that, because I quite honestly don't know what you mean by that. It doesn't betray what came before. And so it tries to rewrite the movie to really being a coming of age story. And that's something that the movie is not really that engaged. It's a story. The movie is not really that engaged in telling on a thematic level. What can I, what can I uh, twist that a little bit? It, it, Cause I didn't think it was a coming of age story either necessarily. I actually viewed it more as a metaphor for our world today and how the youth is showing the adults how shit gets done and that it's the youth that is going to save humanity not the people that are supposedly supposed to be saving us you know what i'm saying i guess so <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I see that yeah i, I, I mean I, I can see it. I think that is an overly generous reading. <laughs> <laughs> the st- 
story the movie is trying to tell. <laughs> but even even if that's the case, I don't think that's the story the movie is telling except for in those last like couple of minutes. Yeah, I think that's the problem is that I don't disagree that that is like the theme that the movie comes to, but it really doesn't start talking about that in a explicit way until we get to the last act of the movie. And then it's really cluttered in with all this action, which to be honest, I did not really find to be all that good. I, I didn't really like the whole stuff on the Island at the end. I thought was like just yeah. noise and I like, like visual noise that I just didn't really respond to. I was, I was disappointed in the Island sequence at the end, but I really did like the, ending 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 sequence in the radio station with Killian Murphy Militian Simmons and the creature I really enjoyed the hell out of that and maybe it was Marco Beltrami's rousing score maybe it was just the fact that the movie ends on a high note similar to Emily Blunt cocking the shotgun at the end of the first film I don't know but this movie knew exactly how to make me leave the movie with a smile on my face I I agree it works as you know, as a fuck yeah kind of ending, but on the, again, like on the level of story, I guess I'm just looking for something. I'm saying something more, but I'm really looking for like something like the story, something deeper, theme, mm-hmm. the story that the, and themes that the first movie are working with are relatively simple, but they're there and they're seated all the, like the themes that it's working with is seated all the way through. So you have a through line and an arc to it so that even when it ends this rather abruptly, you can see that this is the story has come full circle. It's come to its ending point. These characters have grown and fuck. Yeah. They're going to win now. And then in this movie, it's, they're just literally the plot is we need to get from point A to point B. And it is only concerned with that physical journey. The, emotional journey and any sort of deeper character work is not completely ignored, but it's touched on so glancingly that it might as well have been kind of where I'm at with it. And again, like I really enjoyed this movie. (laughs) I worry that I'm coming off as someone who, who didn't (laughs) like it. I, these criticisms to me are just like, if they had done these things, they would have been, perfect instead it's just really good all right well in terms of final <laughs> thoughts and grades out of 10 then uh Danilo, i'm going to pass it over to you first what do you have for us um i think like we've said i think a lot of the action scenes are well directed um i think krasinski has sharpened his talents for uh building tension but i do think in his effort to sort of get characterization out of action i don't think that's entirely successful and that's that's ultimately the thing that sets me back from it um i think it's just a lot of good elements that don't quite get across the finish line for me and and it's entertaining it's enjoyable uh i think fans of the first one will like it i just don't know how many will come away thinking it's the better of the two josh parm uh, I think at the end, I'm just going to kind of just sum up my feeling about it, which is there are some sequences that are well done. There are some performances that I think are portrayed very well by these actors who are very talented, but it really always comes down to the story for me. And 
while I would never argue the first movie had a great story to begin with, it at least had a solid foundation. And it had the kind of the basics of what I needed to get invested with these characters and with this family unit. And my main issue with this film is that I don't think that it really expands things in a satisfying way. It felt very repetitive from the first movie and eventually just felt very repetitive just in terms of a story of the story beats itself. And every time we got into a new section with the story, it didn't really feel like we were learning anything substantial and it only provided actually more questions than answers. And that just became very frustrating after a certain point. So there are things to like about the movie, but overall I found it to be a very kind of dissatisfying experience. And even though I'm not a big fan of the first movie, I at least enjoyed that one way more than I did this one. And Dan bear again, I really like this movie, but it has problems. It has problems with its story and characters and themes, which are the foundation of any film. But that said, it works as a thrilling ride that I just really enjoyed being on. I, as much as like, I'm kind of mad at John Krasinski for yet again, frying my nerves. <laughs> but he he knows how to direct these thriller uh, suspense sequences, and he does that really well. And I'm not going to take that away from the movie at all because, god damn it, I really enjoyed those sequences. <laughs> and I especially enjoyed being able to do so in a theater. I totally understand that. And I think that there is an element to seeing this in a theater that definitely enhanced my viewing experience of this movie. As I mentioned earlier, I would have probably... No, yeah, because I just I did just recently rewatch it as well before seeing this. I gave the first film a seven out of ten, and I did feel that this movie expanded uh, upon the first film in terms of the world and also the creatures. I will definitely argue that the characterization is minimal in terms of how they push these characters forward compared to the first film, but. As mentioned earlier, when you call your film part two as opposed to just two, I have to believe that this is all part of a bigger, grander narrative. And I reserve the harsh criticism to throw at this whole this whole story until I see the full picture. And right now I haven't received that yet. So for the time being, it delivered more of what I liked about the first film in terms of the sound design, the tension, the performances while expanding and the things that I didn't like about the first film, this movie did answer those. Although yes, of course introduced new questions, but now that I know that there's going to be another one beyond this, where with the first film, of course, wasn't entirely sure at the time, uh, I'm giving it the benefit of the doubt. So I don't know what else to say other than that. With that said, I'm giving this a week 8 out of 10. Danila? I also gave the first Quiet Place a 7. I am going to go the opposite direction, though. This one gets a 6 out of 10 for me. Dan Bear? So I I was the big Quiet Place fan of this group, apparently. I gave that a 9. I really loved it. Um, but this one I just liked. Um, it is a very strong 7 for me. Josh Parham? I mean, the first one I liked, didn't love. This one... 
I had way, way more problems with it. So I give this one a five out of ten. Fascinating that we just like went the entire <laughs> five, six, seven, eight. Amazing. Interesting. Love it. Okay, so the first A Quiet Place film in terms of its Oscar potential obviously did better than I think anyone ever expected, garnering Guild nominations, a SAG win for Emily Blunt in Supporting Actress, a Best Sound Editing nomination, which, yes, I mean, damn it, it probably should have won. <laughs> well, considering its competition and what did win, yep. uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, this is going to be a little bit tougher this year because, once again, as mentioned before, more of the same, not necessarily anything new, and there's only one sound category now. With that said, the first film sound was so good that that might be enough to get this into the sound category, although I am more doubtful than I ever was with the first film, which should have gotten into both sound categories as far as I was concerned. Yeah. I mean... All the Star Wars movies get nominated in the sound categories, even though those are literally all the same sounds. Good point. Yeah. So if they like times... your movie, then it can show up there. And I think I would, you know, think until proven otherwise that this is a good shot of getting nominated in best sound. But what I don't think is that it, I don't think it's going to go any further than that. The first one, there was a lot of noise for that screenplay. Um, I think it almost got nominated. Probably it was probably sixth, but I don't think there's going to be that same call with this. I agree with you. I do not think that screenplay or picture is coming anywhere close this time around. Same thing for Emily Blunt. Sorry, everyone. She ain't getting that Oscar nomination for this movie. That's for sure. But I would not rule out the possibility of Marco Beltrami possibly making some noise uh, because Remember, he did get that Golden Globe nomination for that first film. And I definitely think that, you know, maybe got a couple people to go hmm and take some notice. And with this film, as we uh, mentioned before, the work is just so much more pronounced than it was in the first film. I, I, I think it's very, very slightly possible. Well, I think that he probably will make the short list, but I think that is more out of the branches respect for him than mm -hmm. it would be right. necessarily for the work on the movie. Even though mm -hmm. I think his score is good, we know that branches become very insular when it comes to people that they recognize. And I think Baltrami is one of those types of people. So I can see it still staying in the conversation, whether it makes it to actually getting a nomination. I'm a yeah. little doubtful of, but we'll see. Right. Like I said, exactly. It's holding on to that small shred of hope. I, I And for that exact reason that you just said, Josh, I do think that he is someone that the branch really does respect. It's been 11 years since his last nomination for The Hurt Locker. And yeah, I I, I just wouldn't I, like, is it low? Low on its chances? Yeah, it's definitely low. Like, let's be very, very clear about that. Yeah. But this is not this is not something to write off. I think like if he couldn't get nominated for Ford versus Ferrari, <laughs> I I don't know if he's really going to get a nomination for this, but I don't deny that I think he'll be in the conversation. All right. Anyone else have any final thoughts on anything? No. Nope. No. No, I think that this is realistically was probably just going to show up in best sound. If mm -hmm. that. Yeah. All right. Danilo Castro, tell everyone that's listening right now where they can find you on the Internet. You can find me on Twitter at Danilo S. Castro. Dan Bear. You can find me on Twitter at Dance and Dan on Film. Josh Parham. 
You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. And you can find me in Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of Quiet Place Part 2 here on the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support but you can also lend on over a Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.